You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Alhamdulillah, we'll talk a program at TaylorMade for your listening pleasure where our legal eagles come through and conscientize you on what's the latest happenings and at times we also answer your queries. Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah, once again, it's time for our senior attorney, Ashraf Isop, to join us. Ashraf, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, tell us, how are you doing this fine, uh, beautiful Friday evening, Ashraf? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. With the grace and the mercy of Allah, I'm doing very well. Hope that you are doing well too. And so are our dear and loyal listeners. Uh, you always tell me, Shafat, how interesting people find this. Now, you know, as, as a person on the other side of the mic, I can't assess this, but I'm hoping from what you are saying to me, that our dear listeners who've taken their time to listen to us are benefiting from this. Alhamdulillah, all is well on our side and we hope the same for them and for you. No, absolutely, all is well. And I can tell you, even our Mufti A.K. Hussain, Damad Barakatum, has been enjoying the, the segments that, you know, you've been coming on also. So, Alhamdulillah, you know, you are well known, uh, mm-hmm. not only mm-hmm. locally, but uh, dunya bada mashure. And Allah bless you for taking your time out. And uh, you've been having a very busy, busy week indeed, uh, Ashraf. Uh, fill us in and tell us, what was your itinerary like uh, this <laughs> week, Ashraf? Oh, this week was an amazing week. You know, I got a call from a friend of mine who's also an attorney. And he was facing a matter where the state was, the state was opposing bail for his client. The opposition to bail was because the state alleges, and this is like common practice now, right? That any foreigner, the moment they see foreigner, they look into his status. And you'll be amazed at how many foreigners they suddenly say and declare at the last moment. You know what? You are an illegal person and you mustn't get bail. And indeed, if you are illegal, you should be detained deported um, and so he called upon me at the you know 11th hour so to speak and so we had to now prepare for this matter that was coming up on Wednesday so when we looked into the paperwork the client had which unfortunately he had to scrounge around for because the investigating officer from the Hawks, in our view, unlawfully removed his documentation from his house without a warrant and he didn't give any receipt. Be that as it may, it turns out the wife had a faded copy of a court order dating back to 2013. And when we read the court order, as faded as it was, it was clear that the client or the accused was protected from being declared either illegal or being put on a what they call the v list it's called the visa list or a stop list which is that you should be stopped from entering and leaving the republic so it was interesting that the investigating officer under oath now refers to certain documents that was handed to him by the Department of Home Affairs. They normally refer to it as a Section 212 affidavit. 
So 212 affidavit will give you like who the guy is at home affairs, what his position is, etc., etc. So it was interesting when we were reading his affidavit, you know, and he said like he conducts court interviews of people who are suspects to be illegal, suspected to be illegal. He issues orders for them to leave. He processes application for the extension of detention. He monitors the records and he captures all case. He executes operations, etc., etc. And then he now launches into the client's personal circumstances. He says he has access to the national population control. You know, we call that NPR, right? And movement control system, they call it uh, MCS and the National Immigration Information System, NIIS. So there's three systems that he consults, right? And he comes up with a really fanciful story. And this is where it gets interesting, Shiva. He says that, you know, the client is prohibited. Now, now in law, when you say something like uh, a, a person is prohibited, then he falls under Section 29 of the Immigration Act. And, you know, there's a certain way that you have to declare a person prohibited. You can't just say hey, you're prohibited and that's it. Then, surprisingly, while the client had issued us with a marriage certificate from 2002, he says under oath that he was now married to somebody else from 2004 to 2005. Now he says this is according to the NPR. So he says now he was illegally married <clears throat> and the marriage was removed. So interesting question that you first ask, how can a man who's already married, right, since 2002, mm. can be on the system saying that you remarried in 2004. So that was the first for us red light in this whole thing. Then the investigating officer, I mean, the Home Affairs official says now very clearly, see, he's illegal in the Republic. And uh, he's, he, should, he should face further charges in terms of the Immigration Act. And he should be charged under Section 49 which basically reads that anyone who enters the... It's a famous, the Section 49 1A is what they use against the foreigners generally. Anyone who enters or remains in the Republic is in contravention of the Act and found guilty of an offence and he's liable to uh, fine. And then anyone who fails to deport, uh, sorry, depart, will be guilty of an offence. Okay, so he says clearly the guy is illegal and then he says he should be charged under 49. But when we looked at the documents he actually handed into court, which are actual like printouts from the home affairs system, right? We see, hey, he's not on any list, either V list, he's not on follow up, nothing. And most surprisingly, we found no record of the so-called illegal marriage but we found a record of the marriage to the first and only wife who is he's still married to today. You know her ID number and then. In addition, we found documents showing that <clears throat> his kids, 
uh, were registered with the mother's ID and his name, barring one. But but obviously they all um, South African citizens, right? Then the Home Affairs surprisingly now gave a printout from the system and he says, no, you're prohibited because uh, you had some kind of criminal record. Okay. Now he said prohibited because you're dealing with something. And then uh, they, they bring up this marriage thing again. So now it was our job to, you know, to go and explain to the magistrate how unreliable the record keeping was and how unlikely it would be that the man married to a citizen already with three children married from 2002 to date will be married to somebody else. And so our arguments basically carried the day and uh, he was able to secure bail. Now, you know, you know, to people, this might look like, you know, very frivolous or very uninteresting. Mm. But I mean, let me tell you where it becomes very important. You see, when the state makes allegations like you are illegal, you know, that can have serious complications for you. You know, you could be removed from the country. You could be banned for life. Your wife and children could be left now destitute. And there is case law going back, way back to the year 2000. I might have referred to it previously, but it's worthwhile listening to the, the rationale again. So endowed versus the Minister of Home Affairs, which is a decision of the Constitutional Court in 2000 already, which was reaffirmed and, and bolstered in a later judgment of Nandutu in 2019. But the essence of which is that you cannot be subject to an unlawful separation because the parties, including the foreigner, enjoy the right of dignity in the constitution. So whenever you're looking for your rights, Shafat, it's a good idea to go to the constitution and see, you know, what are my rights here? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a citizen of this country. What rights do I enjoy? And I think people should educate themselves and school themselves because you never know when your rights are being taken away. So the right of dignity is basically a constitutional right. But the doubt judgment went a little bit further and it said, look, although the right to marriage is not a constitutional right, an aspect of dignity is the right to marriage. And in the right to marriage, you have the right to the reciprocal duty of support, cohabitation, and not to be placed under such a situation that could lead to permanent separation or breakdown of the marriage. But independent of that, you know, Shafat, it's important again to understand that children are individual rights bearers <clears throat> and their rights are also guaranteed in the Constitution. So when I say independent, I mean independent of their parents, right? So they enjoy rights in terms of Section 28 of the Constitution. And oftentimes you'd find that their rights are being ignored when the state has an issue with the parent. You know, um, 
They are minors, so basically the court is the upper guardian of all minor children. They have a right to ha have their voices heard. And importantly, you know, any judicial decision that can have an impact of, on them must give them the right to be heard. And sometimes it may require like an independent assessment by a curator ad litem. You know, this is what the courts refer to as a curator um, on behalf of somebody else, okay? Or, you know, because the Constitution recognizes the principles and provides a mechanism for ensuring that the voice of the child is heard, um, specifically, I'm now talking about Section 28, one sub that sub one sub h of the constitution they have a right to a legal practitioner to be assigned by them by the state so again at, at state expense a in a civil proceeding affecting the child if substantial injustice would be done to the child and so the state will provide you with legal assistance for your child again very important for us to understand these things and in fact you could even make um, an application to one of the, the, you know, bar associations to appoint somebody pro bono. Pro bono is just means like uh, for free, you know, basically. But uh, these are members of the legal profession quite willing and happy to give their time and their expertise. And interestingly, you could get some bar, you know, practice directives in various courts. Practice directives are like things emanating from the registrar of that court with the judges of that court, and they tell you how to proceed. So in certain instances, the family advocate must also give an opinion and uh, interview the, the relevant uh, parties. So, so be that as it may, what I'm saying to you is, we have two sets of interested parties, or three. Is the accused, his wife, who is, um, you know, entitled to her right to dignity and then the dignity of the children, and how the court goes about sculpting um, the relief for them, or including them in its decision-making process. So you could see that if we had not set aside uh, this application, we would have found ourselves wanting because a man could have been sent out of the country and, you know, ended uh, the entire family's mm. life. Uh, I remember I was referring to Dowd and Nandatu that says you cannot unlawfully separate people. So we argued that in the light of what had happened in 2008, the client, uh, no, sorry, 2013, the client was faced with a similar dilemma where Home Affairs made a similar, you know, similar charge against him, according to the system. But he was very wisely took the matter to the urgent court. And what the investigating officer and the Department of Home Affairs didn't make plain to the court was there was a, a high court order in place that declared, <clears throat> amazingly, it declared that kind of detention, uh, sorry, not detention, uh, declaration of him being on the S list and V list, uh, an entry stop list, as we say, S list, uh, and for him to leave the Republic, right? It was null and void and no force and effect. It was stayed. 
So from 2013, that was the position, right? We're in 2023. But he also, it was pending a review to be brought um, by him against the Department of Home Affairs and a review against the decision of the DG or the minister to appeal the decision, you know, that declared him at that time uh, illegal. Anyway, you know, it, he didn't have the money to do so at, at, at that time. And I, he doesn't even have the funding now. Be that as it may, um, the magistrate very wisely took into account all of these submissions that I've just told you, bolstered very strongly by mm. the high court order that set aside this decision in 2013. So that was just one interesting matter, you know. Um, that was on Wednesday. Then there was, you know, there's a lot that happens in a week. Then we had to file some land claims for families. Can you believe, Shavad, they're waiting 30 years for the land claims commission to adjudicate their loss of land uh, in Bronco Spread, which is out here, maybe two hours drive from Joburg. And it's a small little place and, and people were uprooted very ruthlessly by the apartheid regime. And some of their homes or, or the land that they owned in 1961, I think, uh, was, was given to whites and still occupied by whites, as was their commercial property in the center of town. And uh, it was taken over by the local authority and still owned by the local authority. But can you imagine uh, 30 years later, you're still pursuing it. Mm. You're still asking for compensation or restitution. Restitution is when the, you know, they have to give the land physically back to you on your title deed. And compensation is where you determine the value of the land and then you ask for monetary compensation. So it was an interesting, busy week uh, doing all these kinds of things in between representing a number of other clients that were either declared undesirable when leaving the airport, but uh, they might have been sick. And then there was the, just this morning dealing with the lady uh, all the way from Europe who came in 2004 and you know, married locally and stayed here in the home affairs since 2009 has lost her permanent residence file three times. Um, it, it was very laughable when she applied for the last extension of a temporary residence visa. Imagine this now, Shafat, here's the scenario, right? A, a foreigner has to give a copy of a radiological report. <laughs> so in the report, it states a study was done on the patient and they you know, found not to have had any kind of um, communicable diseases in via the lungs, which is normally like TB and that kind of thing, right? That's why you give a radiological report. They want to see you don't have serious diseases, which will be a legitimate uh, basis to exclude you. And so she hands that in and the decision maker says, oh, but you see, you're studying. This report says you are studying, you're a student, and she rejects the application. Can you imagine that? This mm. poor woman 
It's got nothing to do with studies. A study was done on her. Has her temporary residence application rejected on the basis that she was studying? So it was quite, mm. on, on one level, humorous to see the the kind of interpretation that uh, absolutely Omufes put to this and then rejected it and the kind of impact it causes. Now, she's a mother, right? As a, and, but she she is also a wife, but she's a mother of, of minor children. And it turns out that the minor child's passport needed renewal. But because a mother doesn't have a temporary residence visa, simply because of the bungling of a Department of Home Affairs official, the child is impacted because the child doesn't have a passport. So, Shavad, when you say what kind of week have you had, yeah, these are some of the issues you face. But uh, all good in a day's work, alhamdulillah. You know, whilst you're talking, and Allah bless you for sharing that with us, uh, perhaps a divine decree ensure that, that you bring out the story. And I'm just thinking aloud here, Ashraf, if, you know, if they didn't have uh, people of your caliber, you know, who's, uh, mashallah, very often with all this type of work and uh, one of the best, or if not the best uh, in, in, in this field, what would have happened? I mean, if they can't afford, as you said, uh, there's other people uh, that are prepared to come in. But, you know, at your level, you do a thorough investigation. And uh, for you, it's like uh, just having another lollipop on another day, Ashla. <laughs> well, I must tell you, Shavad, it gives me great, great pleasure to see that human beings are satisfied because there were a lot of tears, um, uh, you know, after this, the, the bail application, because the man already said two weeks. Eh? I mean, two weeks was rough and it's mm. very, very cold here. Be that as it may, I can only quote, well, first of all, I thank Allah for ability. It's nothing to do with me. Allah created this time and space where he is given, he's given me some knowledge to be able to help people, which for which I'm uh, very, very grateful. The second thing is my colleague and the family, they were commenting that in their view, we wouldn't have managed to get bail um, you know, if it wasn't for some kind of intervention that we that we've done, so we're quite happy to to help out people and yeah, and uh, mothers that are now uh, facing deportation and having no no document, can't even buy a uh, a bus ticket without a proper identification and and a, and a current visa, and and uh, yeah, so she. Shame, this woman was from Europe, but she became Muslim some years ago and obviously now married to a Muslim family. So it's a very heartening. In fact, the, the gentleman in the bail application as well, his wife was also Muslim and the rest of the, her family were not. So it was quite interesting, you know, to be able to do your best for the Muslim client and his uh, immediate family and then see that the other family members, you know, appreciate it, you know. I think it's it's a good good to give uh, a good impression of of what a Muslim is able to do. Shabbat. And then you know you spoke about that immigration official uh, reading uh, that uh, you know examination, and they said that the person uh, came here as a student, misreading the whole uh, you know the, the the whole statement and uh, coming to a conclusion where that oh you're a, you're a student and you know you are this and that. I mean, what type of officials are we? Uh, we have a working at uh, immigration, Ashraf. I mean, they're heavily compromised. 
Ah, you know, Shafat, I, you know, it's, you sometimes wonder. I mean, yesterday, a colleague referred a matter where there was a rejection. Imagine this. Based on, not the radiological report, the address of the doctor not being appended to the actual radiological report. I mean, how, how is that impacting Mm. on such an application that it's rejected for such frivolous reasons. And you know, Shafat, when you look at the Immigration Act, right? So any any piece of legislation you're dealing with has to have a purpose, right? And usually you'll find it in the preamble. And the preamble very clearly states that they have to ad- avoid administrative, administrative hurdles and catastrophes. They have to pay attention to human rights of the applicants. They have to be expeditious in how they deal with this. But all of these um, rejections and things that you see, astonishing, astonishing non-compliance, not only with the Constitution, but with the preamble to the Immigration Act in particular. Now, the relief that you have is obviously, first, before you rush off to court, unless it's urgent, it's interesting that you have to, you have to exhaust internal remedies, but the way they put it is the following. So Section 8.1, Oh, Section 8, 1, and 2, let's deal with people that are declared illegal. They have to be given a prescribed form, right? So if you're at the airport and you refuse entry or you're declared illegal, it doesn't say whether you're in or out of the country, you must be given a prescribed form uh, notice, right? And on that notice, it says that, look, you've got to, um, you've got to make an appeal within three days to the DG, uh, sorry, to the minister. And uh, so so the clock is like kind of running, you know, from the time you handed this prescribed form. Mm. But amazingly, the prescribed form has omitted a very important part of the Immigration Act. And that part is, it says, let's just deal with people coming in at the airport, right, Shabbat? So, you now refuse entry. They don't like you. There's not enough pages in your passport or they say something is wrong with your visa, whatever. They have to give you notice of that decision in writing. Then it says 8-1-A. It says you may make representations to the minister, but if the airline on which you uh, arrived at, not airline, it says conveyance because it could mean a car or boat as well, and is about to leave, well, you must get onto that conveyance and go back and await the outcome of your representations outside. Then, interestingly, it says 8.2b. It says, uh, sorry, 8.1b says, look, if that airline is gone, well, then you have three days to make representations to the minister. Now, if you can imagine, right, the rules of carriage by A and C, when you buy a ticket, your carriage is only up to the point of your disembarking the aircraft, right? That's the carriage ended. Now the aircraft, in terms of uh, IATA rules, has to turn back and go back, but its identity changes. So at which point are you to say the conveyance on which you've come has left because you disembarked, your your contract is ended, you can't get back onto that plane with the same ticket. Mm-hmm. So then the argument uh, is, has that conveyance left as soon as it's landed because its its journey has ended? 
Or must that plane now physically turn back and go back with a new identity before you can launch a further review to the minister? Now, why I'm mentioning this, you might find it long-winded, but it's very, very important. You see, when the law says I must use a prescribed form, I can't go and make my own form up, Shafat. Prescribed, it's prescribed by regulations. Yes. Regulations explain the act. Directives are not binding, but regulations are. So the act says, amazingly in 8.2b, if the plane has left and the minister has not confirmed his decision, you may not be removed from the country. You know how important that is? It's important because no one can then deport you. Now, that A2B provision is missing in the prescribed form. I mean, can you imagine the impact now it has on a person faced with this kind of crisis? Mm. But the robbery of your rights is, is plain and clear because you don't know when you're reading that, hey, I can't be removed. I shouldn't be removed. I filed my review to the minister. I shouldn't be removed. So we find, you know, on many occasions, we rush off to urgent court to bring an interdict against the minister, the deputy, the director general, uh, AXA being the uh, uh, owners of the, of the property where the airport is, air traffic control, the airlines, as well as the pilot, and whoever else is involved in this matter. So interdict everyone, Shafat. And you say, you cannot remove this man, you're in breach of the law. Mm. So it's quite interesting when you sometimes have to go knock on the judge's door in the middle of the night and say, judge, you know, they're trying to remove a person and it's unlawful. And the judge says, well, you better, you know, do what you need to do. And uh, on many occasions, you know, airlines would give you false information. Then a very, very big problem is that the airlines, you can phone any airline and their customer care will never give you a telephone number of a supervisor or an email where to send your representations. So you, you, you're forced to serve on the airline via AXA uh, as, uh, uh, as the landlord of the property where the airline has a, a local office. Mm. And sometimes the airlines become quite imaginative and they deny they have a local office. And yeah, so these are the kinds of things we do, but we, we uphold, in our view, very important, Shafat, uh, you know, the human rights and dignity of our clients and applicants. Uh, you only know how, how important that is once you lose it. Absolutely brilliant there, Ashraf. And, you know, once you're talking, then I'm thinking, as you said, you have to file your review uh, to the minister. And in the, in the interim, what happens to that individual? You know, uh, he comes in, then uh, where do they stay? What do they do after that, Ashraf? If very, they, uh, very good. Important question, Shavar. I think you're doing immigration law part-time there. <laughs> you have to give me that degree soon. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, go ahead. So it's interesting, right? So what they do, right? There's a place called inadmissible facility. Now, by its very term, you can hear it's called inad. And that's one of the parties you have to serve on. And they also equally coy about their, who owns them and where must we serve and how must we serve and, you know, are they bound by this? And often 
we would just phone them and, you know, very hostile sometimes reception from them when you say you're an attorney and my client is being held by you in an inadmissible facility. Now, the Immigration Act, right, very generously guarantees you minimum standards of hygiene and nutrition. Man, I tell you, sometimes you are getting nothing. Also, in terms of the Child Care Act, a child may not be detained in the presence of other adults. Now, I've been to the inadmissible facility with the High Court order on many occasions. We had, a, we had an unfortunate case where a South African minor was four years old. He was coming back with his mother from Kenya and the grandma. The father was here. He's a citizen, man. And they incarcerate him with his mother and grandmother in the inadmissible facility. And the father is saying, I'm here. Give my child to me. And they say, no, you must stay with the mother. That's unlawful detention of both the mother and the grandmother because ultimately we had it uplifted. Unfortunately for those clients, they were vegetarian and Home Affairs serves Steers Burger or Nando's Burger or something for, no, not Home Affairs, the Inad. For three days, you, you live off fast foods. Eh? There is a shower and things, but remember I was saying that you cannot incarcerate a child in the presence of adults, especially for, um, you know, non-family adults. I mean, the Child Care Act is very clear. There's certain things you can't even do with a minor child, even if you're a parent in the same room as the minor child. So, again, I'm demonstrating the effect on people when they are being held, in our view, unlawfully in the inadmissible facility um, that exists. So the inadmissible facilities are like contribution between the, uh, the the various airlines and the Department of Home Affairs. And it's wonderful sometimes you, you come across a situation where you phone Home Affairs and you say, listen, where's my client, you know? I say, no, we've got nothing to do with it, you know? Mm. Your client is handed back to the airline. Now it's the airline's problem. And before, Home Affairs would say very imaginatively, oh, no, the airline has loaded him. He's on the international side of South Africa and you can't touch him. <laughs> Many judges have been very aware of this kind of fiction that South African land in the international side of air travel doesn't belong to South Africa. They say, no, 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 he's still on South African land. We want him back. You obey this court order. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of depth, as you've pointed out in this kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, you just do your best. Yeah, let's get international now. You know, you watch these uh, programs on immigration where, you know, you find people going in uh, uh, different countries, uh, Dubai, and then you find in Brazil, and then they find people with uh, drugs and so forth. But uh, you find that in Australia, and perhaps uh, the prejudice thing that comes in uh, when you going to Europe and uh, European countries, uh, you find that uh, they give preferential treatment uh, to their own kind. You know, talking about uh, maybe a European or an Asian comes there, but the Caucasian is always given preferential treatment. Even when you go to Dubai, you see when people coming in. These Arabs or these Arabs are always giving uh, Caucasians preferential treatments to people of other skin color. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's difficult uh, to move away from the fact that uh, even our immigration legislation is Eurocentric, Shafat. 
Yeah, a lot absolutely. of European countries don't need visas to land here. Their nationals come and they live here for 90 days and they go out. And, uh, but from uh, that's a visa-free country. When you come from the subcontinent or other parts of Africa, you have to apply for a visa to get into SA. So again, the international scenario might be influencing our Immigrations Act uh, in that regard. But I think, you know, people of a darker color are discriminated the world over, not just at the port of entry. You know, Shabbat, if you could travel to the UK and some of those uh, officials are all... Shabbat, just one second, please. I need to put you on hold. Our Ashraf is uh, busy there and he's taking his call because uh, you don't know who's at the airport waiting for him or certain of his clients are being uh, held up and, and then, uh, you know, Ashraf will have to get there or perhaps a knock at the door or at the uh, judge's window and say, judge, one of my clients is unfairly held there and uh, could you uh, we do something? And perhaps the judge will tell Ashraf, yeah, you have to do what you have to do. So go and do it. So Alhamdulillah, the importance is you know, getting to know uh, attorneys uh, that are in this field. And as uh, Ashraf uh, has pointed out some uh, uh, revelations, uh, you know, very shocking indeed, uh, what these officials sometimes they don't read a basic line they fail to comprehend. And what happens when there's a miscomprehension, then, uh, you know, suffering for everyone. Unless, who are you going to call? Ashraf Isup, <laughs> senior attorney. Ashraf, <laughs> go, go ahead, my brother. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we were talking about the Eurocentric Euro, of, yeah, Eurocentric. Of, of the world and how it affects immigration policy, right? You know, right now the Tory government has a man of Indian extract, who is the Prime Minister of England, Sunak. And um, uh, the like the Minister of Home Office is, uh, is also of Indian origin, right? They whatever generation of Indians now. And the Tory government and the minister is unashamedly justifying denying rights to refugees, which is like a universal right, and saying to the other refugees or, or people in in, in illegally asylum seekers in England, in the UK, well, you know, we're going to ship you off to Rwanda, man. And you're going to stay in the Congo or somewhere there. And I don't know if you were aware of this Windrush scandal. I don't know if you, you kept up to it. But the Windrush scandal was um, was a deprivation of of immigration rights to people from Jamaica and Haiti and other areas that came 30 years ago and they were legally entitled to it and and it was uh, it was re it, it, it was denied to them so you know wherever you look in the world immigration is is practiced I, I think in a discriminatory manner Shafat you know the president went to Poland and they refused to let his uh, security team disembark and then it was later revealed that people felt Polish were very racist. Not just now, but uh, after the Ukrainian uh, incursion by the Russians, 
people fled and they were also <laughs> giving preferential treatment to people of a lighter hue and people from African countries were denied that kind of thing. So I see, I think you see it all over Asia, right? You see it in the Middle East, as you pointed out. Uh, other parts of Middle East where people of a darker color are discriminated against. Um, and you'd see it in America where the Mexicans are now prevented from coming back into the U.S. But historically, it's interesting to note <laughs> Texas and all of that was part of Mexico, you know, about uh, maybe mm. 100, 200 years ago. Lost by conquest, you know. The one with the Gatling gun, you know, he had the ability to fire more rounds. And obviously, on that basis, you, yeah, you basically, uh, you know, take what you need or take what you want. Mm. Yeah, so... That there is, you. I think you've identified it very clearly. That that is how people are discriminated, basically on the color, on the basis of the color of their skin. In fact, there was a very nice study that the Schengen visa refusal rate was highest amongst African applicants. This is across the board, eh? The Schengen entry visa, and uh, I think the Nigerians were second highest in the world to be refused. Now, we mustn't be fooled. We also have um, our own stresses and strains with people coming from Africa, particularly through um, certain jurisdictions, you know. There is well-known tensions between the South African government and the Moroccan government. They have differing views on uh, uh, Western Sahara. And, uh, you know, and then it, it, it kind of boils over into the diplomatic arena and into the public arena where their, their nationals might not be very easily granted visas. There was a tit for tat some time ago against uh, Nigeria. Yeah, so that's how it plays out, Shafat. You know, uh, Ashraf, also we talk about, uh, you know, immigration. I mean, we're looking at a land like India. You know, once upon a time, everyone wanted to go there. Uh, you know, you were a Muslim, you felt safe to go into India. But, uh, you know, with the Modi government there and Indians themselves are feeling uh, like, you know, they're being, I'm talking about Muslim Indians are feeling so marginalized in their own country. Uh, there's this paranoia, there's this fear that uh, this, uh, you know, Hindutva government uh, is about to, you know, perpetrate genocide on the Muslims. And, uh, you know, this discrimination. So if you go into India now as a Muslim, uh, you will feel uh, unwelcome from the very moment you set foot into that country. What's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? Yeah, so we move from the topic of racism, which is the discrimination on the basis of color. Yes. To discrimination on the basis of belief. Yes. Um, which people call Islamophobia. And I don't think that's a correct term, eh? You know, there's nobody, there's nothing that can clearly point out to you what is Islamophobia. Well, what does it mean to be fearful of Islam? That mm. means it's like kind of a justification. They're fearful of Islam, therefore they they can do all of these things, like burn the Qurans and, you know, insult the Nabi Islam and, you know, do all these funny things, you know. I don't think Islamophobia is the correct term. I think that the term 
you, you, you see, various people have taken various terms to describe their own historical situation. You know, if I say Holocaust to you, you know that in your mind, it can only describe the destruction of the Jews by the Nazi regime, you know. But if I say, um, if I use um, another term, genocide, right? That vision of the Nazis persecuting and killing all these millions of Jews doesn't enter your mind. You then see, you, you see genocide in Russia, sorry, in Africa. You see the Hutu and the Tutsi in Congo. You see genocide in, uh, you know, other parts of the world. Mm. So what, what I'm saying to you, people have been very careful of crafting language to describe their kind of suffering. Now, we haven't found a term for Muslim suffering. You know, we say anti, I mean, Islamophobia and anti-Muslim. And But have you found a term that you can tell me the, the kind of opposition historically and now that the Muslims are faced with? Can, can you give me a, like, can you craft a term? Can, there isn't one, right? Yeah, you know, but if 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 you, if you look at them, I mean, uh, from the uh, colonial times, I mean, uh, and uh, from the time of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi there was also always this opposition to the truth, uh, to Haq. And you know, I'm 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 recalling a story with a, uh, a priest, uh, John Gilchrist was his name, and I was a DDAT's editor at that time, a very young editor indeed, uh, Ashraf. And I remember he came to my office and I said, you know, John, after all the evidence uh, that we have given you. Surely you should accept Islam. And he first thing he told me, Ashraf, was, you know what, uh, uh, Mr. Khan, I got so much to lose, number one. Yeah. Number two, yeah, he said because yeah. he had a, and he was an attorney, uh, I think he was also an attorney, but he, he also had a flock at a, at a very, uh, you know, high market thing in Umschlanga. He had a church, so you can imagine what his congregants were giving him. So what he told me, he said, you know, Islam tackles the roots of my foundation. The roots of my foundation, and it gives me an alternative, and it gives me an alternative that is very hard to ignore. And this is what these uh, Westerners know, and uh, you know, perhaps uh, they feeling it uh, in another way. It feels maybe Islam is taking away uh, more of our females uh, from the Western world because uh, they say in the Western world the biggest amount of uh, reverse to Islam. I'm talking about uh, Euro, uh, from the Caucasians happen to be females, Ashraf. Your thoughts? So, yeah, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I, I think any human being, irrespective of color, uh, if he's really searching for Allah, he'll find him. And um, you'll find it in Islam. I mean, they testify to it. Not, not These are not my words. Uh, Sinead O'Connor, you know, an Irish singer, died. Yes, yes. Simply at a very young age of 59. And I was listening to her interview as to how she had come to Islam. But Chavadu, I think we also need to be, you know, we need to be honest men. You know, when a white man or a white woman come to Islam, you know, we celebrate it. <laughs> you know, if anyone, 100,000 Zulus come to Islam, you know, nobody even makes a big noise or throws a party. 
we colonize Ashraf. Our, we are still uh, under apartheid. I mean, they got our heads all. We, we speak in English. We uh, use superlatives in English. We dream in English too. Go ahead, Ashraf. But you know, we need to be honest ourselves, right? The 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 final sermon. I mean, we just came out of the Hajj more than uh, a month ago. Actually, month. Uh, you know, almost to the to the day. And you have to reflect on the final sermon of the Rasulullah. I mean, he said there was no superior. I mean, he was so extensive in the rights and protection that he gave. It's a almost a universal doctrine. Yes, now we born in the deen, very privileged. You know, we take it for granted that we have this Quran. And you can tell the Swedes, burn all you want. There are 250 million minds and hearts that have put every word, dot, and dash into their hearts. This, you, you, cannot, you cannot eradicate it from their hearts, so you can do what you want. Um, and then we find um, the anti-Muslim or anti-Islam, as you pointed out, was from its inception, even in the Rasulullah's own family. Mm. I mean, how did Abu Lahab earn his title? Getting yes. that fire on his head with his wife. You know, it's there. It's, there. it's in the Quran for, for time immemorial. Now and in the future, even if you stay one day on Mars, you're going to have the same Quran, either in the written form or it's in someone's heart. But here, here's the thing. You see, Allah describes it as a book. Kitab, Zalik al-Kitab, right? Now, a book is a book, right, Shabbat? But this book mm. was re revealed digitally and cosmically even before it was a book. So its own protection comes from Allah. Its miracle is that you can never eradicate it because it is absorbed by the heart simply through the ears or by reading you know, uh, repeatedly, and uh, you heard of many, many miracles of people. I heard just the other day of a person, well, we know a woman who's passed on now, but she was a washerwoman for a Hafiz al-Quran, and for 28 years she washed his clothes, you know, and he would read, and you know, she became Hafiz al-Quran, and mm. in the end accepted uh, Islam, a lady called Rahmat Apa, I remember her many, many years ago living here in Fordsburg, uh, and she was blind in the end, eh? and um, yeah, that, that, there's, there's the miracle for you. Back to the topic that you just asked me, you know, so clearly racism we, we, we've identified is, but now, you know, we seem to have all of the, all of the things in one pot, because mm. you get black Muslims as well that are discriminated against. One, mm. because they're Muslims, and two, because they're black. Hmm. So, it's a, yeah, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Well, I'm saying, you see, it's linguicide when you when you reserve certain terms for certain people's sufferings exclusively. Um, if I say there was a genocide against the Muslims, it somehow kind of has a more acceptance, you know, it has a softer feeling than if I say there was a Holocaust against the Muslims. Um, mm. 
So, yeah, whatever term you put has a meaning. It seems to be ring-fenced for certain kinds of reaction. Um, see, let's take the term anti-Semitism. A very powerful term, right? You've heard mm. it over and over and over. Over, yes. And if you dissect it, then you say, but who is a Semite? And then you find that, no, hang on, no. A Semite is anyone of Semitic origin. Mm. Um, so how could it be applying to people that are non-Semites? So, you know, they, any anti-Jewish um, sentiment is then covered by anti-Semitism. Anti-Abrahamic. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We all we, we all have a common denominator in Ibrahim alayhi salam. So we all come out from the uh, Semite or uh, Semite religion, uh, Ashraf. Semitic, yeah. So you know you have the Semites from the um, Arab world. The, the so you know you have the Ashkenazi and Sephardicum Jews, right? Yes. So the Sephardicum are those people that came from the Arab lands um, and still exist today in Morocco and other areas, Algeria and so many other places. Um, and unfortunately, people have also forgotten that the Semitic Jews were saved by the Muslims. In fact, um, there's a stunning, stunning explanation by uh, Professor Roy Casagandra from um, university in the US. Um, I think it's Texas. And he speaks of uh, Sayyidina Umar entering Jerusalem. And his most evocative terms describes how the Muslim army, you see, the, the Christian rulers wanted to sue for peace. Okay, they were occupied by the Romans, right? And now they were in charge of the city. And then there was now the attack by the Muslims and then Khalid bin Walid was in charge. So at some stage, he like kind of went to meet the Christian ruler. You know, the church ruled, the church and state was one, right? And the churches, I mean, the let's call him bishop because I don't know what the exact designation was. So he came out, no, sorry, Khalid bin Walid was trying to pass off as uh, Umar al-Khattab. But one of the guys knew uh, from the church's side, Umar al-Khattab, and he says, he told the priest, he reckoned, no, this is not the guy. Tell him to come with the real Khalif. So the negotiations broke down, you know, to uplift the siege. So there comes Sayyidina Umar. And so the priest comes outside the wall, and you know, you know, the, the church also has a lot of um, ceremony, right? You know, you, I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. No, they walk with the frankincense and yes. they burn the Loban and, you know, they have gold and all that, right? And even the Pope wears a hat, man. So, <laughs> then he came out and he saw this guy coming on the camel. And so, he looks up to the guy on the camel. He reckons, you know, welcome. The Khalifa, <laughs> the guy on the camel says, sorry, I'm not the man. There's a man in front. And Sayyidina Umar was in rags and he was leading the camel. And the, the, the rabbi was, or not rabbi, the uh, priest was stunned, you know. Hey, you're supposed to be the Khalif and you know. He said, no, it was that guy's turn. And Sayyidina Umar, it was his turn, so it was now my turn to lead the camel. So 
first impact. Now he enters into Jerusalem and he says, so the, so the priests ask him like, Ish, when are you going to start killing all of us and you know, taking the women? I said, no, I said, no, there's nothing like that. I'm not doing anything like that. You, those that want to leave, they're free to leave. Like the Romans, they must just go. And your churches will be uh, intact. Your homes will be intact and your religion is guaranteed. And the same, I will extend for everyone else under my jurisdiction. So Serna Umar now goes to where the present-day Aqsa, uh, um, uh, Aqsa is. Before the, he, built, he built the golden, um, uh, the, the mosque with the golden uh, uh, dome. And he gets up there he, because he was interested in, you know, where was Sayyidina Isa and his history. And they took him up there and it was a garbage dump for 500 years. Sayyidina Umar with his own hands started cleaning the place. And the, and the priest was like shocked. And uh, they then cleaned it up. You know, they were using it as a garbage dump in 500 years. Then Sayyidina Umar, he, he said, so where's all the Jews? No, we threw them out. Do you know Sayyidina Umar instructed him to go and bring 60 observant Jews back there? Because they also had an entitlement uh, to Aqsa. So, you know, Shavad, when you look back, right, and the, we were speaking about protection of the Muslims um, giving to non-Muslims, and, 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 and I don't think we must expect reciprocation then or now. Because what we did is what was commanded. So, you know, mm. sometimes you hear People say, ah, but they're doing this to us, you know, we must. Then one wise man said, but they're not our teachers, man. It's the Rasul Sallallahu was your teacher, and he taught you not to do that. So you can't be like that. And I, I think that's very telling in its, in its depth. Mm, so we spoke, you know, we spoke a lot about human rights coming down from uh, the plains of Arafat, the final sermon where there's no discrimination, equality, freedom, even the rights of women. But I mean, you know that my topic always is 14 lines down from the start was the prohibition of riba finally. Yes. That is incredible because if you just look at how the world is operating today, I mean, it's just amazing how wholeheartedly we take riba. I was quite interested in finding some Hanafi scholar in the UK saying, oh, no, no, it's not riba if you have a mortgage. I said to the person who sent me that, I said, he needs to be given a prize, man. <laughs> yeah. mm, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And, our, and our Mufti AK Hussein can give you a whole encyclopedia on that uh, topic also. Ashraf, uh, you know, look at the time. <laughs> we have... We've actually uh, uh, be in the final uh, hour. Yeah, in the final hour, you were absolutely, mashallah, as usual, lots of uh, brilliant information coming through your hikmah and your spirituality all in one. What a package, Ashraf. Your parting words uh, this evening. Uh, as always, you know, I was also reflecting on the depth of the Yasin when I was reading it the other day. It's beautiful if you actually read it after Fajr. Eh? It makes yes. It, it, tremendous difference mm. um, I've done, I've, I actually do what you told me you know 
and I read it like uh, sometimes uh, towards the evening. But the Fajr thing, I mean, even uh, maybe after the Hajjud thing, I mean, you just you get every word coming through, and it's like evergreen, Ashraf. It's like evergreen. You know, where it says there, you're lighting that fire, uh, you know, the matches, you're striking the tree, you get it from. And all those things, you know, the stories of that uh, man telling them, believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, uh, you, uh, I can go and give you a commentary because of uh, the inspiration you gave me. Go ahead, Ashraf. Go ahead. No, always. You know, I, I enjoy reading the Yasin with its meaning. I mean, often when I come to that part where all he said when I'm, I'm asking you to obey, obey Allah, because he came running from the farthest, furthest part of the city. Yes. min <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, you know, it just escapes me yeah. now. But there came a man running from the furthest part of the city saying, obey the messengers. And they said to him, what? And then they killed him. But, you know, he still loved them. When he was saying from Jannah, if only my people knew man. Imagine that. That's all captured in the Yasin. Then, of course, the instruction to feed, you know, the poor, because they, in the Yasin you also read, they say, what? If Allah wants, he must feed them. That's what it, they, they said. So, you know, we have an obligation to feed the poor as well. Yeah, Shafat, parting words always remember us in your du'as, make a great, great du'as for the Ummah. And just, just be content with one thing, right, Shabbat? Allah created us to worship Him. Nothing else matters. That's our contract. People might disagree with their divine decree. It doesn't matter, man. We'll just carry on. Uh, because that uh, hukum, that command came from our beloved Nabi. So that's all we need to worry about. Make dua, carry on. Yeah, Waja. I mean, Axel, you know, there's a the Yeah, Waja, Kum. Yeah, Max Axel Medina. Yeah, Rajulan. Rajulan. Rajulan, that's the word. Rajulan is what you do in the in the Hajj, Rijal. You know, when you're running around the Kaaba, when you lift your. and in, in, in the Safa Marwa. You know, the one part of that, the Prophet said to the people, look, look majestic, you know. March, Rajal, Rajulan. Yeah. So that's where it is. Now, you know your thing, and at the time when you really wanted, you know, it uh, escaped, but Alhamdulillah, you, could, you got your tafsir in order, we found the ayat of the Quran, and this came to my head, because when you read it over and over now, Yasin wal Quran wal Hakim, and the people actually singing it all the time, but not uh, understanding what they're reading, and uh, that's a big danger, Ashraf. Yeah, we must read, we must read the Quran with understanding, yeah, but any understand. language that brings it to you, you know. No, absolutely, and I, you know, once again, I embrace you, I celebrate you, I enjoy you, my beloved Brother, I mean you, my bhaijan now. You know that. I don't know. Alhamdulillah. I mean that's a that's a bond we have developed, and uh, inshallah, when we meet on that side, it will be familiar faces. Uh, faces, inshallah, Ashraf. I mean, I mean, and you know what? <laughs> uh, thanks, big thanks to you for hosting this every week, making your efforts. Uh, the people that organize this, um, um, the talk, the owners of the station. I think it's a great way to reach people. You see, it's a good example of how you can use technology. For good. No, Alhamdulillah, you know, uh, going around the world, your podcast, anytime, Ashraf. I mean, a thousand years from now, you'll say, hey, that legal talk, let's hear that, Ashraf. <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> they uh, pull out your podcast and they, they listen to you. Jazakallah khaira, Ashraf. Uh, you have a beautiful, lovely evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
Yes, I understand, Carlo. Carlo, for great engineering. It's time. Uh, hey, I, you still have to do a second segment here to Carlo. Time for us to go for the Ishazan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.